Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. Managing acute pain is a common task faced by all junior doctors. With a range of analgesics available and a seemingly endless variety of conditions to apply them to, this task can become quite complex. On today's podcast I'll be chatting with Dr Nellie Dick. Nellie is an anaesthetist with an interest in acute pain management at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital in Queensland, Australia. Thank you very Welcome, much, Nellie. Todd. Nellie, can I start with a case vignette? Let's imagine that we've got a 52-year-old man who's in hospital following uh, major joint surgery. He's day two post-operative and he's being managed with Panadol, Meloxicam and Oxycodone. He now complains of unmanageable pain and needs additional uh, pain relief. So in broad brushstrokes, what are the principles of managing acute pain in a guy like this? Well, initially, when uh, seeing the patient, you have to take the patient into consideration. So um, before going into how we can treat the pain, first I think we need to look at the patient and what their expectations are. So with joint surgery, in general... Um, patients are coached that they will have a certain amount of uncomfortable pain following the surgery and a lot of them um, come with that expectation. So really, first, it's nice to get um, a background on what the patient is expecting Um, and then um, where they're sitting with their pain therapy. So I always try and find out first what they use for pain at home and what works Some of them come already on pain medications, which can complicate it a little bit. Um, But in our case, this case vignette that you're talking about, um, if he was previously opioid naive or pain relief naive, then it's a little bit easier to deal with. So then you look at how to treat the pain, um, finding out obviously what level of pain they're at and and what function they have. whether you're obviously you need to think about pharmacological and non-pharmacological techniques so um, in this patient for example if he wasn't mobilizing um, and was just staying in bed and catastrophizing about pain then there would be a lot more um, work you'd have to do with the patient and their headspace to get around the pain rather than just throwing a lot of pharmacology at them that they are getting some distraction because distraction therapy is very important in dealing with pain uh, and movement that they are getting up and moving around so pharmacologically we have um, very we like to start simply first and I you were saying that he was already taking paracetamol and meloxicam which is a really good place to start. So Panadol regularly is uh, the mainstay of pain treatment. It's the first step in the WHO analgesic ladder. And all patients, uh, it is a safe drug, so most patients can tolerate paracetamol uh, regularly. And it will provide a very good background pain relief. Adding in meloxicam as non-steroidal is, again going to be synergistic with the Panadol and a very good background pain relief, also a simple analgesic. It can be risky in patients that have kidney function, um, rigid kidney function, or 
in the elderly, <clears throat> if you've had surgery and you've lost a lot of blood, um, or if you've had a hypotensive period, uh, if you can think about whether your patient was at risk or is at risk of an acute kidney injury, you just have to be careful and use these drugs with caution. But generally, a coxib would be the way that I would go in a, a post-operative analgesic um, for a, when choosing a non-steroidal. I'd use a coxib, which is COX-2 inhibitor, because it has less side effects. Um, this patient's on meloxicam, and they may have been before, so it's fair enough to continue that. Obviously, an opioid, and it is part of treating... Um, acute pain and opioids are very good at treating acute pain and are often very necessary. So it would be um, important to find out how often he was using it. For this patient, it may be that they just haven't asked for enough endone in a timely fashion. So it may be as simple as increasing the amount of endone he can have or um, reducing the window that he can have it or just encouraging him to ask for it. Sometimes patients um, don't realise that they haven't maximised the use of their PRN opioids. If that is already been used um, and he, you're looking for something else, then you have to consider that maybe he would need some long-acting opioid for a short period of time. So this can be a little bit controversial because in... Currently, we're undergoing um, an opioid crisis in Australia, um, similar to North America, where slow-release opioids are being abused. Um, it's a big problem in the community, and we, basically uh, the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists have put out a position statement against using uh, slow-release opioids for the management of acute pain. Now... We still do use them and um, in some acute pain, severe acute pain and for prolonged acute pain states, such as in a knee replacement surgery, which is a big surgery and can have pain that lasts for a longer period of time than, say, a simple diagnostic laparoscopy. Um, you might need to have a short period of slow-release opioids and... The rules or guidelines that we would suggest if you're going down that route are that the doses that get written up are time-limited, so say a three-day course of Tarjan for a joint replacement, and um, that it doesn't get prescribed when they get discharged from hospital, and that they, when prescribing it, that you only prescribe it, it's only given by the nursing staff if they qualify, meaning that their sedation score is not too high, that they're not too sedated. Um, another um, avenue that you can go down is using atypical opioids. So in our uh, patient here, you could consider using the atypical opioid tepentadol. Um, it's relatively new. It's um, similar to tramadol, however it doesn't have the serotonin effect, so it's a lot more tolerable and it has a larger safety profile, much better safety profile than traditional opioids like OxyContin and Targen. 
So you could use, again, a short um, prescription time limited to, say, three days of that, and adding that to this patient might just give him the um, pain relief that he needs. He's on day two, which can be the worst for a joint replacement, and just adding a couple of days of a slow release to pentadol, for example, might be what he needs just to get him through not necessarily needing to go home on it, but just to get him through this post-operative period. Pentadol has a noradrenaline <coughs> component which enhances the inhibitory pathways that you have um, to help control pain. So to summarise, a structured approach includes assessment of their expectations, utilisation of non-pharmacological agents such as distraction, ice, movement, maximise the use of paracetamol, non-steroidals and short-term narcotics and then consider a sustained release option. Now, Nellie, if a junior doctor was seeing a patient like this on the ward, what should they look for in terms of detecting a patient who has a more sinister cause of their pain? As yes, uh, it's a very good point. So when examining the patient and talking to the patient, <clears throat> we, I often, when I went through medical school, I was taught that pain is the fifth vital sign. Um, and so in a patient that's had a joint replacement, a joint replacement <clears throat> you have to be aware that there could be something else going on. So examining the, the site of the surgery, um, looking at their range of movement, looking at if they have suddenly, uh, if the pain has suddenly increased out of keeping with what would be normal pain for this type of surgery, um, obviously looking at all their observations, if they're febrile, if they're tachycardic, if their blood pressure is normal. Um, and then they usually would have post-operative blood tests done and let's see if their haemoglobin is dropping. So you'd be wanting to rule out if there was any sort of bleeding or infection or other cause that would be causing severe pain on day two. Nellie, you mentioned uh, or referred to some of the non-pharmacological therapies that might be introduced. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yes, so for joint replacements, often we use a lot of um, cold uh, therapy, so things like cold packs or Iceman. Some hospitals use Iceman therapy, which is just basically a big cold pack that gets placed over the leg filled with ice. Um, and in the initial stages, using heat is not necessarily going to help. Later on, they can, um, patients can use heat. It's another way of, of treating pain. Um, distraction, uh, making sure that the um, patient has uh, different forms of distraction. Most hospital beds have TVs and often they uh, have windows. They have places to walk, places to get themselves um, food, obviously encouraging them to have visitors um, and using their own distractions like their iPhones and iPads and books. Um, it can be as simple as that, just reminding them to keep distracting themselves. Um, we do talk about mindfulness um, and there is an app that is free called the Headspace app that can be used to um, if your patient is interested in using mindfulness to deal with pain. We always encourage really good sleep because no one can deal with pain without sleep. If you're sleep deprived, your pain scores will always be higher. 
um, and in some cases they may even need some help pharmacologically to get the sleep that they need to be able to deal with the pain. And movement is very important. So getting up and moving about, even though it might sound counterintuitive when they're in pain, it actually does help with their pain. We talked about paracetamol a little bit earlier, and there's always the option of intravenous paracetamol. Is there any advantage in using it intravenously compared with um, orally? So IV paracetamol is uh, definitely faster onset, and um, it it works better um, for patients. Um, However, it's more expensive. So the bioavailability of the oral paracetamol is actually quite good, but if you wanted paracetamol to help someone quickly and more effectively, then IV is the way to go. Nellie, we talked about opioid medications in the management of acute pain. What are the options that are available in most uh, hospitals at the moment? The opioid options available in most hospitals, so as I was talking about before, traditional versus atypical, the oral opioids um, we generally go to first would be the OxyContin and Targen um, for slow release and then immediate release we generally would be using Oxycodone or Endone as what most people know it as. Um, and then atypical oral opioids that we have been seeing a lot more use of are Tepentol that I mentioned earlier which does come in a slow release form that we were discussing earlier It's not available in the public system in the immediate release form, but it is available in Australia um, with private script. And we also use buprenorphine a lot, which is uh, in a sublingual form orally. And we can also use tramadol. Uh, Obviously, in a patient that's had a joint replacement, the anaesthetist may have written them up for an IV parental opioid in a form of a PCA. Um, which usually gets taken down quite quickly because of um, wanting the patient to mobilise as soon as possible. And in the PCA, we have um, the options of morphine, fentanyl. Some hospitals have oxycodone, IV and hydromorphone. Um, We often see now um, junior doctors will be coming across ketamine infusions. um, Ketamine is a wonderful... IV drug that can be used to decrease central sensitisation, decrease the risk of uh, an acute pain turning into a persistent pain, and it is given IV as a slow infusion, as a low-dose infusion to avoid any hallucinations or dysphoric effects. And um, that is often used following joint replacement, especially in someone who has is already on a high-dose opioid in the community. It can help because those people are harder to treat generally um, with their post-operative pain. Nellie, you mentioned several options there for oral narcotic um, options. Um, how, how would you go about working out which of those agents to prescribe to which patient? So it is very individual. Um, patients... Generally, there's a lot of factors. So you're looking at what the patient is going to tolerate, um, what they've had before, what they like, what they don't like, what they have 
the side effects that they don't like, etc. Um, then you have the if this for a joint replacement, they will be on full diet, so you don't have any of the gastrointestinal issues to worry about. For example, if you had intra-abdominal surgery, you might consider trying the buprenorphine sublingual tablets because they don't have to be digested. They can just, they're just absorbed in the mouth um, and you can take that digestive part out of the equation because they're usually nil by mouth following surgery or they're only on small sips of fluid. <clears throat> so this patient should be able to pretty much have any of our oral opioids and then it just becomes a matter of whether you're going to use traditional opioids or atypical opioids and often um, the anaesthetist will have started their analgesic plan from theatre and so just tailoring that on the ward will fall to the junior doctor. Um, if they've started on something that doesn't appear to be working then they will be able to swap to one of the other oral opioids that we've tried, that, we, that we've mentioned. Um, I guess it doesn't really, it, it's not so important what you use, it's just how you use it and making sure that it's been prescribed in a safe way. Um, as I said before, the uh, Australian New Zealand College of Anesthetists want us to move away from using slow-release um, traditional opioids so that might change the um, thought process and the direction of what these patients initially get prescribed so we will be seeing a lot more of these patients coming out of theatre prescribed with dependidol slow release or no slow release just using um, more uh, immediate release opioids more often to make up for those what we would have usually given via the slow-release option. Are there any specific advantages or disadvantages to any of those medications that you mentioned? Yes, so obviously the reason that we're trying to get away from the Targin and the um, OxyContin slow-release is because of the side effects of opioids. So all the major goal for treating any patient postoperatively is to give them a multimodal analgesic plan which avoids opioids as much as we can so and maximizing the effect that you get from the opioids so you, we want to try and use the par paracetamol non-steroidals um, ketamine if we have to we can introduce the um, alpha 2 delta ligand pregabalin or gabapentin which can um, reduce the amount of opioids that you end up needing um, because opioids have many side effects. So obviously the most dangerous being respiratory depression, but they also have the tolerance and dependence and can cause opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So they do have a place in treating acute pain, but if we can aim to do a multimodal um, analgesia and reduce the amount of opioid that we use, then we also reduce the side effects that we get from the opioid. Um, Long-term opioids obviously have the whole other gamut of problems with immunosuppression and decreased androgens, etc., um, and diversion um, being sold on the street. So um, we are currently, as I said, moving towards the atypical 
opioids because they do have less of those side effects. So with um, Targin and Oxycontin and Endone, they're all very constipating. They can give you nausea and vomiting um, and that respiratory depression. The atypical opioids have those same effects but to a much lesser degree. So when thinking about using them, the atypical ones have a safer, um, a better safety profile. Nelly, of all those complications, one of the more important ones is the issue of dependence. How big a problem is it for the community? So Australia has a very long, a very large opioid problem. Um, we have been even <coughs> classified as being in an opioid crisis. Um, it comes. From the, it's in the community, but it also comes from us as clinicians in hospitals who often start our patients on these medications. Um, in the community, people are moving away from injectable um, opioids like heroin and using pharmaceutical drugs to a much bigger degree. Um, and there's been a lot of articles and publications about how GPs are being used as the new modern-day drug dealer um, to give out these opioids. So it's a massive problem and we have to address it and one of the ways that we are trying to address it is just being a little bit more careful in our prescribing practices and having clear end dates and clear goals also educating our patients about the side effects because a lot of them don't realise actually what they're doing. Also educating our patients, this is more in a chronic pain setting, but that a lot of the chronic pain um, conditions are not actually treatable with opioids. So they get often up titrated and uh, for no reason at all and it just gives them all the side effects and doesn't help with their pain relief or their function in life. Nelly, what sort of circumstances should a clinician be seeking support from somebody in an acute pain service such as yourself? Well, it's difficult to give uh, very specific guidelines about that, but in a public health service, we generally, um, treating teams are happy to deal with acute pain states up to the point, say for this gentleman, he's on Panadol, Meloxicam and Endone. Um, if they felt like they couldn't deal, if the treating team couldn't deal with this patient's pain and that they wanted to try something like adding in some ketamine to stop some uh, central <coughs> um, wind up, then they might want an acute pain service to come along and consult because giving anything IV, any parental opioids IV such as a PCA or a ketamine infusion generally um, should be prescribed by an acute pain service. Um, some teams are happy to add in things like um, pregabalin and gabapentin as opioid sparing drugs or if they feel like their patient has some neuropathic type pain so in assessing this patient, um, we didn't really touch on that, um, talking about what kind of pain he had on day two, um, whether it was more um, surgical 
achy pain or whether he had any symptoms of neuropathic pain because that can tailor which direction you go in treating as well. Um, and neuropathic pain, there are a few options available. Um, tricyclic antidepressants can be used, ketamine, pregabalin, gabapentin. Um, and uh, we generally are happy to consult if the um, team is worried about a neuropathic pain component. Um, but I have noticed that some teams are happy to deal with that themselves now. So it's really just about the comfort of the team and what they're happy to deal with. If it's a bit more complex needing IV treatment, then generally we get involved. If there's a persistent pain need, the acute pain team can help that referral process, but generally acute pain won't deal with the persistent pain side of things. Nellie, what role does a regional anaesthetic play in the management of acute pain, not necessarily in this particular case vignette, but as a general sweeping statement? Yes, so regional anaesthesia is wonderful, and if you can block it, you should. <laughs> That's my view. Um, it um, obviously uh, helps avoid that central um, sensitisation process in theatre. So if you can block a patient preoperatively, then you get that um, blockage of all the sympathetic nervous system and um, pain signals that are coming from the surgery. And if you can block it and put a catheter in, then you can use that nerve regional block catheter to get them through the post-operative period. And they are generally very good for that acute pain, but they also have been shown to reduce the risk of persistent pain developing. Um, we can use our case as an example. Um, if, for instance, this was a knee surgery, um, he um, may or may not have had local infiltration analgesia, which is not a regional block, but it's local anaesthetic in the joint, which may have got him through to day two, which is why he's got pain now, because that has worn off. Um, but he may have also been offered something called an adductor canal block, which is a regional technique which you can also put a catheter in. And this, any sort of regional technique for any surgery is going to obviously massively opioid spare that patient so they don't have any of those side effects and they get very good pain relief. So we are seeing a lot more regional techniques um, most of shoulder surgery and upper limb surgeries will get um, blocks of the brachial plexus. Um, for knees, there are a lot of adductor canal catheters going in. Um, hips, we do a lot of fascia iliaca blocks. Um, I work with a foot and ankle surgeon and they all get ankle blocks and they just offer that patient that first very good analgesia for about 18 hours at least if you can put a catheter in, obviously, you get longer. And um, it just avoids all the side effects and complements all the other multimodal techniques that you've used. Is there ever a role for these sorts of techniques after the, the operation's been completed? Yes. So I have before put in blocks in the um, recovery room and we can also put them in on the ward. 
They're not generally on day two. The patient should be up moving around. Again, back to our case vignette. I would not necessarily in this patient jump to putting in the regional block on day two, but definitely post-operatively in recovery in that first 24 hours if the pain is um, not under control then a regional block should still be considered. If we're going further along the post-operative course I think it becomes a matter of thinking about mobilisation and getting them moving. So some of our blocks obviously can affect muscle function and we don't want them stuck in bed we want them moving, so you have to consider that if you're going to do a post-operative block. Nelly, in regards to some of the more advanced techniques, you mentioned ketamine earlier. What are some of the other agents that might be brought in in somebody who's failing on these standard therapies? We often use ketamine um, intra-op to help already initially with central sensitisation, but it can be brought in in someone who is failing with their pain relief to, again, reduce the amount of opioid that they need um, and get them through those um, difficult post-operative days in joints day two and day three. Um, the infusion runs at a, um, as I said, low dose and tailored to the patient So and their side effects. If they're not, they will let you know very quickly if they're not tolerating the effects of the ketamine. Um, but they, it is used with great success in someone who especially is not coping with their um, pain despite using um, quite high doses of um, immediate release opioids. The pregabalin is also very helpful in opioid sparing and can be started preoperatively. Um, we start at a low dose um, and also have to consider definitely that in patients with renal function, uh, <clears throat> renal dysfunction or acute kidney injury that this drug is completely renally excreted so that you have to be careful. Um, it has um, makes patients drowsy so when c combined with other opioids you have to be careful um, giving it to elderly patients. They may become too drowsy and in heart failure patients you also have to be careful but generally it's tolerated well you have to give it um, we generally start with a low BD dose and if you're very concerned you can just start giving it at one dose a day at night because of the drowsy effect and it again helps reduce that amount of opioid if they can't tolerate those um, alpha 2 delta agonist, then we can try uh, amitriptyline or nortriptyline, so a tricyclic um, antidepressant, and it is used at a very low dose, and again, it can help generally with neuropathic pain, um, but um, if they have neuropathic pain features. Nearly one other thing that I've seen uh, used a bit is lignocaine infusions. What's the role of a lignocaine infusion? It is another um, analgesic um, that we can use. Lignocaine um, is used as an infusion, as a bolus and infusion for our um, bowel surgery patients. It 
uh, was introduced for their enhanced recovery after surgery program. Um, it's given as a bolus at the start, so one and a half milligrams per kilogram, and then as an infusion through the case that continues into recovery and has shown to be um, uh, good to treat that uh, kind of pain for open abdominal surgery. Um, and that is to replace things like um, an epidural for that surgery or um, to reduce the amount of opioid again. I wouldn't, in a patient that we were treating acute pain, wouldn't use it in the post-operative period as an analgesic rescue technique. Um, it's used in persistent pain in a very different manner to what we're talking about in theatre at a much higher dose. Um, and that's to treat persistent neuropathic pain um, problems that uh, have to be done, obviously, under a monitored, um, in a monitored setting. Last question, Nellie. In some cases, clonidine has been used for its analgesic properties. What, does, what role does that play? That's true. Clonidine has been used um, and is used in theatre. It can be used orally, post-operatively to um, help with pain. It is limited a little because of its side effects of hypotension and bradycardia, which in patients who've had a major surgery are often plagued with a little bit of hypotension because of potentially... Um, blood loss, um, dehydration, etc. So wanting to avoid compounding that, it's not used as often as some of the other drugs we've talked about. But it is, yes, another option, usually prescribed by an acute pain service um, in, a, in the oral form for, uh, again, opioid sparing um, option. It can be used intraoperatively and immediately postoperatively in recovery to try and rescue someone who is uh, in pain in recovery. It's used as a preventative thing intraoperatively so that uh, as another opioid-sparing multimodal technique. Nellie, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. It's obviously a very common problem um, and with a multitude of uh, potential therapies, it becomes complex very quickly. So thanks very much for shedding some light on it for us today. No worries. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great episodes just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.